Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Uh, Good Friday, guys. Good Friday to all of you. You have power, Sean. You dealt with the brunt of... uh, this ice storm in uh, eastern Ontario. Way to go. What happened? Your chainsaw out? You're taking trees down right and left? Yeah, and I, I managed to make it out of it with all my digits. So um, <laughs> hub readers don't have to worry that uh, I'm, I'm going to be impaired from writing my screeds. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary week here in uh, eastern Ontario and parts of Quebec. Uh, our power was down for more than 24 hours uh, in our little town of Lorignel. Um So between fireplaces and flashlights, uh, we we had an interesting week. Our means our kids have have been able to gorge on sweets and and all all the rest. Uh, so they've actually had a pretty good week. Awesome. Well, look, let's dive right in here. Two topics I want to take on for this edition of the roundtable, and I want to begin with. Um, an issue obviously we follow closely at the hub, which is healthcare and the lack of, frankly, um, requisite innovation policy change that could help Canada deal with both incredible backlogs that built up over the course of the pandemic, but also just more systemic challenges that now show, according to a whole variety of studies, that Canada is spending more on healthcare per capita than many other advanced economies and getting poor outcomes well i want your assessment guys as to the long-awaited action by the supreme court of canada to refuse to hear brian day's uh, appeal people will know brian day as the uh, the founder of a private health clinic in british columbia that um has for 14 years led a a court case through uh, the various BC um, levels and divisions of uh, of their respective courts, trying to get um, this the premise that a, a patient's uh, rights to life, liberty, and security under the charter should allow them uh, the option of opting out of the public system, and should allow private clinics like his clinic to provide necessary surgical procedures to alleviate uh, pain and suffering. So Sean, let me come to you first. One, does this surprise you at all? Um, In some ways, wasn't this a kind of foregone conclusion? If the Supreme Court had heard this case, if this case, let's say, had been successful. I mean, that would have just been a level of disruption in the system that the system probably wouldn't tolerate. Wow. Yeah. There's so much to unpack here. You, you know, you outline the, the, 
the need for healthcare reform, which of course is something that we've been documenting at the hub, including progress that is being made, not through the legal system, but through the political process, right? We have governments from the left to the right increasingly converging on the need for private health care. Um, so in that sense, the spirit of the Canby case may ultimately live on and act, you know, through the policy and political processes. Um, and then there are questions about whether we ought to be using Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to be effectively creating new rights. I don't think anyone would argue that there's a right to uh, health care in the Charter as it's as it's written, of course. Um, but uh, people have grown accustomed to the Supreme Court effectively reading into life, liberty and security of person a whole host of rights that we didn't know exist before, uh, including most recently, of course, the the right to, to euthanasia. Um, but let me just uh, wrap up my first comments here by taking directly on uh, the fact that the Supreme Court refused to hear the case, which I think actually looks quite bad on the Supreme Court. We have a similar case years ago, Stewart and Rudyard, as you know, the Chihuly case in Quebec, which the Supreme Court ruled on. Um, the fact that it refused to take up this case signals to me more a set of ideological preferences um, than a commitment to jurisprudential thinking and independence and all the rest. And, you know, I think if the Supreme Court wants to reinforce the impression, particularly amongst conservatives, that it is for all intents and purposes, a small P political institution dedicated monolithically to advancing uh, progressive political preferences um, by effectively uh, carrying out activist decisions um, through the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I think they're going to bring a lot of disrepute onto the Supreme Court and actually uh, empower conservative politicians to uh, increasingly use the notwithstanding clause, which, of course, has become um, popularized even in the past 24 months or so. So that's a very, very long way of saying there's a lot of different dimensions to this subject. Um, but I, I think it looks bad on the Supreme Court that it it opted not to take up this case. Yeah. So let me come to you, Stuart, because, I mean, Day had a comment, um, uh, obviously profoundly disappointed that 14 years and I presume millions of dollars of litigation has led to this result. So this, <laughs> this is a guy who's not in a good mood on this Easter weekend, but he said something to the following that resonated with me. He said, quote, it's now clear to all that medically unacceptable wait times have become forcibly, forcibly embedded and represent government policy in the publicly funded healthcare system. The courts have endorsed this approach. Um, strong words, but in some ways, Stuart, I find them hard to argue about. And look, there's lots of reasons to have a healthy debate over the right balance of public and private um, healthcare delivery. But let's remind ourselves that a lot of other countries other than the big battle of the United States do deliver more effective healthcare at a lower cost per capita with better outcomes with some sort of mixed system. And I guess what I worry about here, Stuart, is this really does seem to slam the door on... Um, you know, a movement, an evolution in Canada towards some kind of mixed delivery, which again, objectively, in all these other systems, non-scary countries like Israel and the Scandinavians and you name it, 
that's where they've gone and they've gone there and gotten better results than we're getting under our publicly funded Medicare system. Yeah, I think it is also worth remembering too that that 2005 case that Sean mentioned, the reasoning, I know they're different cases, but the reasoning for that was exactly because the government had failed to provide access to these kinds of services, MRIs, cataract surgeries, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I, th I think maybe there is a possibility that if you're a premier who was hoping to just sort of maintain the status quo and keep soaking in billions of dollars from the feds, um, I think if you think you're now off the hook, I think that's probably wrong. And the reason for that is that public polling on this is swinging towards private delivery in a way that's kind of new. It's it's like 30 years of polling. Something's definitely changing. And I would also note, too, that, you know, when that happened in 2005 in Quebec, where they had more kind of private options, the polling in Quebec started to swing more in favor of private delivery. And I think that if you are in charge of a healthcare system, if you're a premier or you're a minister, health minister in a province, you should be looking at that as, you know, the wait times don't go away because the day case um, isn't being heard. And you're going to have to find some solution to this. The status quo is obviously not working. If you're ruling out private delivery, you're going to have to get really creative because when you look at that sort of peer country comparison data, um, you're right. It's pretty clear. So um, if I'm a premier right now, I'm thinking um, maybe I should be going with public opinion and not the way the Supreme Court is going. May, may I take up comments from, from both of you? First of all, just on the uh, really powerful quote from uh, Dr. Day, Rudyard, uh, as you say, it's hard to disagree with that. Uh, one thing I think that can be lost on Canadians is that uh, rationing isn't an inadvertent consequence of our system. It's what holds the system together. We we have a gap between uh, demand, uh, which, of course, is only going to grow because of aging demographics and supply, because we've artificially constrained supply, uh, because we've excluded the private sector from playing a role in our, our healthcare delivery. And so the net effect is the public system has to ration through wait times and other means in order to bring supply and demand into something approximating equilibrium. Um, the, the second thing I'd say, which is a kind of bigger picture point, and you know, we have a lot of um, uh, people in the legal world who are in the Hub community and listen to the Hub podcast, I'll be interested to hear their thoughts on this. Um, but in some ways, I'm not disappointed that the decision or the case isn't being heard for the following reason. You know, the left has used activist judicial decisions to advance their political priorities outside of the democratic process for a long time. They've effectively gotten judges to read into the Constitution rights that just plainly don't exist um, or certainly weren't conceived of when the Constitution was created in order to bypass um, the, you know, the need for persuasion and all of the other elements of decision making in a democratic society. Um, the right has rightly been critical of those uh, of those activities. But in the day case, in a way, the right almost seemed to be saying, you know what? We're we're sick and tired of the left doing this to us, so we're just going to do it ourselves, and we're going to make the case that Section Seven of the Charter uh, effectively um, provides for some kind of right to health care. Um, and you know, I think what's interesting is that we don't need the legal system to make that judgment on our behalf 
as Stuart says, we're seeing it actually manifest itself through the democratic process. The BCNDP, the Alberta UCP, the uh, Ontario PCs are all effectively converging on something approximating what Brian Day ultimately wants to achieve, which is, as you say, some form of mixed public and private system. So in some ways, this is a, a victory for small d democracy, the political process. Um, and I guess I just hope that the Supreme Court is consistent moving forward, that it's not going to weigh into policy or political decisions um, when they are the priorities of progressive organizations. Um, but I think there's probably reason to hold your breath uh, on that front. Let me just make my final contribution to this discussion to be go to a slightly more sinister place. I mean, I think we're a bit naive if we don't connect the fact that we have these expanding wait lines filled with hundreds of thousands of people in, you know, situations of real acute pain and suffering. That translates into some pretty scary, you know, statistics, guys, that in the province of Ontario, you know, we're closing in on one in five adults having been prescribed uh, an opioid in the last uh, 12 months. And the reason they're getting opioids is, yes, to treat pain for, I'm sure, urgent and you know critical care situations, but a lot of it is to manage chronic pain, which is the result of wait times. And, you know, I've had conversations with addiction experts at CAMH, and they say that there's just some really horrible math that means if you take a large population like Ontario or British Columbia, and you give millions of people in that population opioids, a certain percentage, a certain time later, will be on the street using fentanyl. It's just a regression analysis. A certain number of people will become addicted to the pill form. They will be taken off the pill form because of addiction, and they will search out street drugs. And now our governments respond to this by saying, hey, we've got safe injection sites for you. Maybe we'll go one step further and we'll kind of house you outdoors in the downtown east side of Vancouver in an open-air drug mart, and uh, we'll give you needles, and, and now we'll start talking to you about even giving you, quote, safe supply. It's a really effective way to take people off wait lists. You take people off wait lists by killing them. I know this sounds extreme, guys, but there is there has to be a correlation here between this tsunami of suffering that's out there that we tolerate. And I just, from a, from a moral ethical perspective, how do we allow just hundreds, thousands of our fellow citizens to live in pain and suffering because of ideological hangups about how healthcare has to be delivered through state public owned systems in Canada? And again, I just think we are a naive, blind, uh, conveniently distracted if we don't connect the size of these wait times the size of these lists and the explosion of the opioid uh, addiction crisis in Canada, 
which in the last year has killed about, I think, 10 to 12,000 of our fellow citizens. I believe that's the number. You guys can correct me. But if you look at life years lost, because many of the people dying of opioids are young, not old, it's equivalent to almost the same number of life years of people that died during the pandemic. And we all know the government response we had to the pandemic, but not to wait times and not to the opioid crisis. Okay, I got my rant in early early this <laughs> this episode, Sean. I know you feel strongly about these issues too. Yeah, I would just add, um, yeah, I think there is certainly something to that, uh, Rudyard. Right I would just add the other shoe to drop, of course, is medical assistance and dying. You know, we have increasing evidence that people are turning um, to medical assistance and dining because they feel like the system broadly defined uh, isn't providing them the supports that they need. Everything from housing supports to income supports to it, it only follows logically the type of urgent medical care that they need. Um, and, and so, you know, the, I, I think that as Stuart says, I think in some ways the political class is now responding to growing public demand for change. Um, and in that sense, uh, well, I understand that Dr. Day is disappointed after all of these efforts. I think he leaves a lasting legacy on changing the conversation when it comes to healthcare. Um, and the ideas that he's advanced through these cases are going to live on in policy changes that um, that we're seeing across across the country. Okay. Um, let me get the stat right. So it was around 6,000 Canadians who tragically died last year in, in 2022. Still way, way too many. Okay, let's take a break, guys. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk consultants behaving badly. Ottawa joining them in a splurge of spending, getting other people to do maybe work that you should be doing. Sounds kind of attractive. I wish I could do that at the hub. <laughs> Doesn't always happen, though. Kind of have to do the work yourself. Doesn't that how work works? Well, we'll dig into it right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Okay, guys, topic number two for the roundtable. Stuart, I'm going to come to you first uh, to summarize this news for us. Uh, we've got new reports out that Ottawa did not disclose $146 million uh, contract with Accenture to run the basically SIBA, uh, uh, which was the kind of small business, I guess, medium-sized business kind of bailout uh, during the pandemic. Um, are you surprised by the one the size of this contract, and why are we only finding out about this in dribs and drabs? Yeah, I I am not surprised, um, <laughs> but maybe that's just the cynical reporter in me. Um, but the 
interesting thing about this is, and sometimes you see a controversy like this and you think, is there something sinister going on here? Or is this just sort of run of the mill incompetence um, going on? And I think this must be the latter because the Globe actually broke a similar story in February about this big contract not being disclosed. And they had some numbers, um, 67 million, something around there. But now we're finding out the total worth of these contracts is $146 million. I would think that if the government knew they were sitting on this, they wouldn't have let it be two stories over the course of a month and a half because that's the worst way to handle a controversy like this. So I think there is a possibility that the government itself is being surprised by some of these numbers. Um, and that's as bad a sign as you can imagine. One thing I did notice a, a note in there um, in the Globe story that will, it seems almost specifically designed to annoy Roger. Um, <laughs> it says 12 million of this 189 million budget for SIBA was tied to work done by public servants. So something like 5% of the work for this program was done by actual public servants. The rest was done by consultants. Can I take up that point, Stuart? Because, you know, in the aftermath of the pandemic, there was a lot of backslapping across the country, wasn't there, about how great our response was and how our our system of uh, government and our independent, highly professional public service stepped up in extraordinary ways and it reflected a comparative advantage for Canada. And, you know, I'm sure listeners heard all of these things when we're increasingly learning that <laughs> by and large, a lot of it was outsourced to companies, right? Um, they tried, they outsourced SIBA, we've discovered to Accenture. They outsourced uh, the pandemic uh, app uh, to various companies through this mom and pop shop where these guys made a killing working from their basements doing subcontracts. They tried to outsource uh, the program targeting students, of course, to the Kielbergers. It begs the question, what exactly did the government of Canada itself do uh, during the pandemic, particularly because we know um, that the ranks of the federal public service swelled? Um, because there was a need, of course, to bring on all of these new public servants um, to carry out uh, a, a response to the pandemic. I'll turn it over to Rudyard in a minute. But I was on another podcast uh, last week, uh, and I was joined by a nice guy, smart guy who worked for uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and then subsequently Minister Morneau and Minister Freeland. And he said kind of incredulously, you know, if Pierre Polyev wants to balance the budget, He's going to have to find, you know, as much as 10 or 15 billion dollars. Um, and where's that going to come from? And you think, like, how much time do you got, buddy? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's plenty of evidence. And this only reinforces it um, that Ottawa is too big, um, that it's ineffectual. Um, and uh, at this point, getting back to basics uh, would not only make it cheaper, um, but I think there's a lot of reason to think it would actually make for more eff effective government. Yeah. Well, I, I would interested, like take this a little bit bigger picture. And you've started to do that, Sean, because if you if you think about these, this contract in the context that since um, Trudeau was elected, the size of the federal government, I believe, has grown by a third, 30, 31 percent or something, if you want to be precise. You then have, um, as you say, a surge of hiring. You, you actually, hats off, you know, were one of the people that got 
circulating the media, an awareness that, you know, what was it, Sean, like 80% of all the job growth in the first two years of the pandemic was, like across Canada, was within government? Am I right about that? Yeah, exactly. There was a point, you know, as we came out of the pandemic where the government was heralding the fact that we had recovered all of our jobs um, that had been lost during the pandemic. But when you looked at the numbers, the truth is the public sector was doing the vast majority of of the, the, the work in that regard. Right. And then we know from the government's own reporting that they are having a really hard time. You know, the so-called return to office in Ottawa um, is still three years after the pandemic when companies like TELUS are five days a week back at the office is still tr struggling at, you know, two to three days and supposedly compliance in some departments, um, you know, is even less than that. So you put this all together and it's, you know, it, it arrives at a theme that we talk a lot about at the hub, which is, you know, state capacity. And I worry, Stuart, that we start to put together pre-pandemic some of the real challenges that we saw vis-a-vis -vis Ottawa's capacity around the Phoenix payroll system, around military procurement. You know, the list was growing pre-pandemic. We then go through the pandemic, another swelling of the size of government, clearly a uh, a response to all this, a kind of workaround that these firms, and I, I think in some ways we've been unfair and somehow getting angry at McKinsey and Accenture. <laughs> you know, you could argue maybe, Stuart, that they're the kind of last man and woman standing in terms of providing some horsepower and some organizational heft that can actually operationalize programs. Like, are we at this point, Stuart, maybe where... I don't know, I worry like an emperor with no clothes kind of moment where state capacity is is maybe has eroded at a level that we don't fully appreciate because we've simply flooded the end zone with this massive wave of hiring. But it really, at the end of the day, has done little to address this kind of fundamental problem. Yeah, I, I think it's really instructive to listen to the conversation around some of the green economy uh, measures in the budget. Because even among normally progressive journalists, if you see panels and things like that, there's kind of a cynicism of like, you know, they'll throw this money around and probably nothing will happen. And if you are a progressive person who believes that the government's really important to do a number of different things, the idea of state capacity attracting, not, not just that it's ineffective, but that there's ridicule of the idea of the government actually doing anything. I think that's really a toxic place to be because... If you're Pierre Polyev coming in and saying we need to cut some stuff and it's going to be difficult, Canadians will be more attuned to that idea if they think that the government can't do anything anyways. Um, so something to look out for. We're working on a, a couple of pieces now about the government's daycare system, which that involves three levels of government. And that's kind of a sneaky way to download the scandals and the controversy and the cynicism <laughs> to other levels of government. But the red tape and the bureaucracy and the hoops you have to jump through are just ridiculous. And I, you know, talked to the owner of the daycare that my daughter goes to, and she sounds a little bit more like Milton Friedman every time I talk to her because she's had to deal with these kind of government issues. So I, you know, if you're a conservative and you believe in small government, I think you should still be concerned about state capacity. But if you're a progressive, this should be like a five alarm fire for you. Yeah, here, here that, that, you know, I always... It's often said uh, in the context of Obamacare, um, 
that the biggest threat to Obamacare wasn't the policy program. It was that the website wouldn't work. Um, and it, it signaled to people, how can the government effectively manage this massive share of the U.S. economy if it can't run a, a basic website? And I, I think that represents a, a serious threat, as you say, to the kind of progressive ambitions um, from some voices in our politics. But at a at a more basic level, I, 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 I think Rudyard's precisely right um, that uh, we've let particularly at the national level, our government state capacity erode over several decades. You know, if you think about what Ottawa does these days, it's effectively a big cash register that transfers money to individuals into other orders of government. It has very little policy capacity, um, you know, maybe with the exception of of trade policy, where I, I think it is recognized globally as being um, as, as being particularly strong. Um, but on a whole host of files, um, it's really come to kind of atrophy and erode. And and so, as you say, Stuart, I think moving forward, the question isn't how big government ought to be. Um, but whatever we 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 ask government to do, we need to make sure it's capable of of doing that. And one area that may get conservatives a little uncomfortable, but I, I think is actually part of the solution is in the aftermath of the sponsorship scandal, the Harper government imposed a lot of transparency and accountability rules around the system um, in, in order to avoid those types of, of spending scandals emerging again. Um, but I think one of the effects of that has been to effectively uh, diminish agency of people um, to be able to kind of exercise their common sense, carry out their job, ultimately be held accountable, better for better or for worse. Um, but I, I do think there's probably some of that that also needs to be looked at. How do we actually identify people who want to do a good job and then give them the ability to, to you know, exercise, as I say, their common sense, their abilities, and um, as opposed to turning them into what amounts to basically box checking robots. And then, you know, every year terrorizing them with auditor generals, right? Like... I think we have to understand that the whole accountability regime that voters want also leads to some of this paralysis and it leads to a lot of good people leaving the public service because they're just sick of it. They're sick of the inability to to be effective. Like these are very genuine people who actually, believe it or not, like want to make a difference and go into the public service for those reasons. And then they run into this kind of new bureaucracy of checks and double checks and constant relentless scrutiny and you know hyperactive political staff it goes on and on i'll just end with a final observation just connecting our two stories because you know at the beginning we this podcast we talked about brian day and, and you know the failure of the supreme court to listen to his appeal um and i guess my question to you guys is you know I'm very cynical on good friday i apologize to people but there just seems to be this sense of like can you look at both of these issues, the, the, the contracting out and state capacity, the Supreme Court and this, you know, freezing of Canadian healthcare inside a, a public funded model in some ways as, as gatekeeping, right? As systems protecting themselves from, you know, externalities, whether that's external competition in the service delivery, whether it's external, um, I don't know, you know, it, 
the suffering of people on wait time lists. We're just not going to listen to that. We're not going to, you know, they just kind of have to suck it up, Buttercup, you know, because that's how it works in Canada. I don't know, guys, maybe Sean to give you the last word here. I just don't, I just feel that there's something really ah, just unhealthy here where you have these kind of closed systems that are just plowing on like giant steam liners, you know, across the ocean. And at times I just feel like, I feel a sense of hopelessness. Like we're just, we can't even get them to turn two degrees, let alone the 45 degrees that we might actually like because we think that that could affect the type of change we need either in terms of state capacity or the delivery of public uh, private health care in Canada. Yeah, yeah, I think there's something to that. And, and of course, Pierre Polyev has come to capture that sense of hopelessness that you described with the phrase Canada is broken. Um, and I think for better or for worse, that's going to resonate with a lot of people, um, people who, you know, pay their taxes and think that in exchange they get, you know, they ought to have reasonable expectations about basic services and then they can't get a passport for months and months and months. So I, I think there's something to that. I, 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 I don't quite know the solution, but we ought to end on a positive you know, front on this Easter weekend. Um, uh, uh, and so I guess what I would say is the answer probably doesn't involve taking on the system holus bolus. It's about empowering small groups in different areas, making pro incremental progress, and then kind of building out. Um, you know, uh, I've been a champion in some of my other writing for the creation of an advanced research projects agency to try to catalyze breakthrough innovation and technology. I've essentially given up hope that we can do that through our conventional tri-councils and other parts of the so-called innovation infrastructure. And so maybe the answer is opposed to trying to reform some of these institutions, it's actually creating new ones and trying to embed in their DNA the kind of entrepreneurialism and dynamism, Rudyard, that you're talking about. If they can become models, and if if nothing else, um, you know, kind of shame the rest of the system um, into looking at itself um, and its inadequacies. Thanks, Sean. Well, big week uh, next week at the Hub, Stuart. Uh, we are entering year three, two years under the belt. Um, what are people going to see in the pages of the Hub next week? And more importantly, what are they going to see on this podcast come next Friday? I fear that all of us are going to have to shave, put on shirts, comb our hair. Guys, this is the end of an era. Yeah, it's the beginning of a terrifying new era for <laughs> the podcast when we'll be shifting to videos. So um, it's pretty exciting. Actually, as we you know celebrate two years, we'll be doing a series of announcements. I won't spoil any of them for us, but um, keep watching. And we'll also have some good content alongside that, too. We have a strong piece from Howard Angle on Monday that I think you should watch out for on the decline of civic virtues and just our perception of those virtues, which is a story you might have seen coming from some big polling. But um, it's an exciting week, both from what we're going to tell you about the hub and from the content we'll be running too. Excellent. And uh, we're all going to see uh, Sean's uh, Iceman beard next week uh, on the video version of the hub roundtable. And Sean, I understand all the hub dialogues are going to video too. You and Amal Atar Guzman have got your hands cut out for you. Audio and video. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll have to make sure my keep my kids and, and dogs out of the out of the screenshot so that we don't uh, go viral for the wrong reasons. But yeah, lots of exciting 
developments, you know, as we enter year three at the hub, um, thanks in large part to the generosity of our donors and our, our members, we're entering the year with a lot of energy and momentum. And we, as Stuart says, really some exciting announcements about changes that we're making or additions uh, to our regular programming. It's, it's going to be an exciting week, a chance to kind of look back on year two accomplishments, but more importantly, look forward on all of the big things uh, uh, in year three. Final question. Amal, do you have some really good like video filters that you're going to use to take my sun-ravaged 52-year-old face and turn it into the kind of baby-like complexion of Stuart, of Stuart and Sean? I'm worried here. I'm going to look like the old man on the podcast. Well, stay tuned. We're just going to test it out and just hope for the best. <laughs> hope for the best. I think that could be my motto for... For, for my 50s <laughs> that's that's how the government that's government policy making in a nutshell right there exactly the new national motto hope for the best i love it well everybody look we hope for the best for you and your families uh this uh, easter weekend the time of rebirth renewal um thanks for coming along for the ride next week as we celebrate uh the hub's two-year mark and the commencement of our third year of operation. So thanks everybody for coming along for the ride, for lending your time and support to the hub. Talk to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the hub's editor-in-chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.